Chapter 7 A Private Fidelity We must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Elie Wiesel, Nobel Peace Prize Acceptance Speech September 28, 2008, Sunday It's 48 hours after Red Friday, when Canada's media announced that the Liberals had disowned the disgraced Manitoba candidate who was extremist, anti-Semitic, and unfit for public office. That's me. I'm walking up the shallow steps of a popular Winnipeg restaurant for a crisis management meeting with my remaining campaign workers. I'd been an enthusiastic patron of this venerable place for eons, and my connection goes back further than my love for its celebrated steaks and wines. Family legend has it that my mom, Jessie Foster, played the piano in an all-girl band here in the 30s, when that kind of work was both glamorous and a bit scandalous. She died at just 33, shortly after I was born, and I cherish the little knowledge I have about her life. Her history with this restaurant is one of the reasons my future husband and I celebrated our engagement dinner here in the 70s. These memories are mingling sweetly as I reach for the door when a wave of cold fear sweeps over me. The restaurant's owner, who's usually around, is a prominent member of the Jewish community. We have a cordial relationship, but what if he believes the papers? Might he ask me to leave? Will the staff be snickering? These possibilities hadn't hit me until now right here on the familiar doorstep. Like Dickens' ghost of Christmas past, the thought of the owner spirits me backwards. A few steps takes me to an elegant wrought iron bench, sandwiched between two lush flowering plants. I half sit and half fall on it, and in an instant, I'm reliving my history with the Jewish community in Winnipeg. Winnipeg in the 50s and 60s had a large and vibrant Jewish community, but there were few Jewish families in suburban Fort Garry when I was growing up there. There was little discussion then about what had happened to Europe's Jews during the war. The Shoah, the Holocaust, the murder of six million Jews was still trapped in whispers. My only messenger about the suffering of the Jews was Anne Frank, whose Diary of a Young Girl was published in English in 1952. A gift from my grandmother, it was a powerful window on Anne's life in hiding in Amsterdam, but her story seemed to have happened in another remote universe. My world was unremarkable. My adoptive mother was secretary to a Jewish furrier who had a daughter my age. The two parents commiserated about our unacceptable behavior of one kind or another, and we two incorrigibles became chums and allies. My high school crush and graduation date was Jewish, and it wasn't until my first year at the University of Manitoba that I came fully into contact with my generation of Winnipeg's Jews.
Suddenly, Jewish kids were my constant companions. We were working side by side on the Manitoban, the student newspaper. We were auditioning for the Stage Society and for the Glee Club, and we were at the same political lectures and debates. My reaction to this new community was puzzlement. We had so much in common. Where had they been all my life? At about the same time, I started my first job at the Winnipeg Free Press, where I met Veronica Singer, a fellow copy girl. We joked about being worms together, the absolute lowest form of newspaper life. She was brilliant, vivacious, and funny, much bolder than I, and we were best buddies. Ronnie's parents were both Viennese doctors who had narrowly escaped the Holocaust. The family lived now in a Tudor cottage in Winnipeg's bucolic Westgate, where Ronnie and I spent a lot of time loafing, eating, and reading each other's very bad poetry. The atmosphere there was warm, gentle, refined, even elegant compared to my own home, where anything creative was considered self-indulgence. The welcome and the kindness that I felt from the Singer family produced in me not only love, but also a conflicting low-grade misery. The closer I got to my Jewish friends, the more I felt it. I was discovering that the breathtaking crime I thought had happened somewhere else in a place I'd never been had happened to people I knew. I was realizing that their suffering had been visited upon them by white Christians like me. The Holocaust is seldom mentioned as a driving force of the activist generation of students in the 60s. But for many of us, its revelations were a shock so intense and so ugly that we realized we didn't know humanity at all. Indeed, we even longed to separate ourselves from the human race. These realizations were complicated by my long-time loving relationship with one Emma Kreis, a German refugee who came in weekly all through my teen years to clean my parents' apartment. Mrs. Kreis was muscular and wiry. She wore her wispy gunmetal hair in a severe bun. She was missing a few teeth and spoke almost no English. But Mrs. Christ showered me with abundant love and affection. Her eyes lit up when I came home from school. She cooked spatzel for me, taught me a passable German I've now forgotten, and one melancholy song I can still sing, Die Lorelei. It was my love and respect for Emma Christ that forced me to confront the grotesque evil behind the Holocaust. Upsetting questions nagged at me. Where had she been during the war? What had she done? Was she something other than the benevolent presence that she was in my life? Could anyone so loving have taken part in the persecution of the Jews? If she had been one of Hitler's willing accomplices, as author Daniel Golden came to call them, what did that mean? Did I have the same capacity inside me? I wanted to believe that Mrs. Christ was different and that I would have been different and that we would have found a way to stand up to madness. Because of the language barrier, 
I would never have the answers, never know the truth. But my heart chose to believe in her innocence. The simultaneous love I felt for the very German Mrs. Christ and for my kindred spirit Veronica introduced me to the painful intricacies of moral judgment. From those early days on, I would struggle with the question, how could good people surrender to unimaginable evil? And could that be prevented? How? When survivors of the Holocaust began to tell their stories, they reinforced in me what literature had stirred, the capacity to see not just with my eyes, but with my memory and my humanity. They were saying, never again, and not just never again for them, but for everyone. I was deeply moved by the wisdom, the empathy, and generosity of that. The survivors were teaching me the grounded reality of the suffering other, and, although I was unaware of it at the time, initiating me into the community of resistance where I would spend the rest of my life. I promised myself I would remember, but that wasn't enough. I needed to help others remember as well. This private fidelity was acted out in many small ways during my life. I took my young sons to lectures and films and introduced them to Holocaust survivors who traveled to Winnipeg. We talked about how the incomprehensible tragedy came about, and I frequently incorporated what I knew in what I wrote and taught. I recall a poignant incident that occurred in the winter of 1982. My growing sons and I were living in an antiquated apartment on the top floor of a three-story walk-up on Grosvenor Avenue. On New Year's Day, one of the coldest in Winnipeg's history, unwelcome news arrived. Our landlord was going to renovate our home into an architectural showpiece. We were served with an order to vacate, and soon there was an angry knock on the door from our neighbor Jake, a Dutchman who had lived there for 25 years with his wife Laurel. Both were consumed with bitterness. To think... Jake muttered, pacing wildly around my living room. We risked our lives to help the Jews during the war, and now a Jewish landlord is throwing us out of our home. This was a jarring, classic non sequitur, the kind of implicit racist comment that must be acknowledged. Easy to call out when the offender is smug and self-righteous much more difficult but no less important when the offender is in intense, misdirected pain. I fearfully and very, very gently reminded Jake he had not taken the risks on behalf of the Jews for any future advantage, but because it was the only honorable human thing to do. I had imagined acting with courage during the horror endured by European Jews, my neighbor and his wife had actually done so. All of these years after the war, surely he could see that no racial injustice had been done to him. Yes, of course he could. A few long minutes 
brought back Jake's customary calm. His face and his tone spoke for his remorse. The memory of Jake fades and is replaced by that of another European who defied the Nazis, King Christian X of Denmark. When the Nazis invaded in April 1940, they ordered Danish Jews to wear the identifying yellow star of David. The legend goes that the very next day, the king took his daily horseback ride around Copenhagen parks wearing a yellow star. And the day after that, all the Danes were wearing one. It was a thrilling and profoundly moving story. Simple solidarity had made a malicious order unenforceable. But like a lot of thrilling stories, it was fiction, which I discovered in 1995 when I covered the United Nations Social Development Summit in Copenhagen. On the flight there from London, a well-turned-out Danish businessman chuckled benevolently. He hated to be the one to disillusion me, but it was a myth. He consoled me with the truth, which turned out to be more helpful. He consoled me with the truth, which turned out to be even more hopeful. The Danes rescued roughly 95% of their Jewish community, many of whom were smuggled by boat to Sweden. Those who did not survive were too old or ill to be moved, or just didn't understand the Nazi threat. Different stories but in both cases the Danes had prevailed over malicious power. What price they paid for their actions has never been properly documented. I once asked a prominent fellow Winnipegger who had been part of the Danish underground to tell me more about that. He looked away. He paused. He put his hands over his eyes. Not now, he said softly. Not ever. We did things. We had to do things. We... No, no, that's all I will say. His response disturbed me, and I wondered why the inspiring Danish example, an illustration of successful direct action in extreme circumstances, is not a larger part of the Holocaust story. The Danish faces slip away, and new ones replace them. Kenneth Branagh and Stanley Tucci. They look intense, arrogant, and imperious in their Nazi regalia. They glare at me from the DVD cover of Conspiracy, a brilliant docudrama produced in 2000. The film focuses on the 1943 Vonsi meeting that culminated in the final solution to the Jewish problem. During that conference... Fifteen lawyers who were more or less running Germany unanimously endorsed the gas chambers. Conspiracy became a staple of my communications classes when I was teaching at the University of Winnipeg. My students were required to watch the film, then deconstruct the manipulation of language and information that was used to manufacture prejudice against the Jews. For many of my students, conspiracy marked the first time they paid attention to the monstrous reality of the Holocaust. I began to realize then that the worst fears of the Jewish community were coming true. Incredibly, people were forgetting 
what had happened. Over 10 years, about a 1,000 students took my communications course. All of them were disturbed by conspiracy, but most seemed thankful for being exposed to it. It was a minuscule achievement, it's true, but it was better than none at all. I would not forget this nightmarish history, and if I could help it, neither would anyone who found their way to my class. I see more faces. They're in the front row of the audience at my one-woman play, Bloomberg's Radio, which I produced for the Winnipeg Fringe Festival in 2002 and 2003. Bloomberg's Radio was about the difficulty of a journalist holding on to integrity in the age of consolidated corporate media. With help from the Lending Library of Winnipeg's Jewish Community Campus, I included certain relevant events of the Holocaust into the play. I noted that the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto were allowed an active political life, actually holding elections. As one cynical German authority commented, Why not? It keeps them busy, and it doesn't change a thing. Some might see this as an apt description of today's political parade. In spite of my awkward amateur acting, Bloomberg's radio sold out at the Winnipeg Fringe Festival two years in a row. On this Sunday morning, thoughts and memories are whirling in my head, and still I hesitate. Dare I open the restaurant's door? My debate with myself continues. I'd been a substitute teacher at a private Jewish elementary school. I'd helped author Irving Abella, a former president of the Canadian Jewish Congress, promote his book, None is Too Many. I had helped establish a new Jewish retirement home in Winnipeg by speaking at a fundraising dinner. When I put together a political brain trust for my parliamentary campaign, again, I turned to the Jewish community. Their response had been enthusiastic and supportive. Five of the members of my election advisory council, whom I dubbed my brain trust, were Jewish. As I returned to the present, my newfound confusion and timidity are making me angry. I breathe deeply and bustle into the restaurant's old-fashioned luxury. As I return to the present, my newfound confusion and timidity are making me angry. I breathe deeply and bustle into the restaurant's old-fashioned luxury. Crimson leather banquettes gleaming under the calm, dim lights. Perpetual happy hour. I'm in luck and flooded with relief. The owner isn't here the servers are courteous. I see my campaign crew crowded into a big booth, looking anxiously in my direction. They've saved a spot for me, and I'm very grateful to slide into it. My campaign manager, Selena Bieber, assures me that despite the devastating charges against me, most of the team wants to continue the fight for a parliamentary seat as an independent candidate. A multi-talented businesswoman, she will stay by my side, although she's been cautioned by the liberals that this is not a good career move. I tell my crew I'm not tempted to counterattack my accusers. I know Canada's shameful history with respect to the Jewish community. 
I understand the need for vigilance. I thought I was part of it. Had I known earlier in my life what ugliness awaited me in the election of 2008, I could not have behaved differently. After a lengthy discussion, continuing feels more honorable to me than quitting. I agree to carry on. The Canadian Jewish Congress and B'nai B'rith had connected me to a contentious faction of the 9-11 Truth Movement. They had interpreted the Hughes paragraph as a slur on Israel and Jewish communities everywhere. Although this connection had to be laboriously explained to Stéphane Dion, he accepted their view. With aggressive encouragement from the Conservative Party, the same leaders were soon congratulating Dion for getting rid of what B'nai B'rith called the candidate with a history of anti-Semitism. Their mistake would damage my life in ways they could never foresee or repair. On their judgment, I was escorted out of the election, out of my life as an honorable person, and with my credibility in shreds, out of my career as a journalist.